turn to Isaiah 60, and then shortly after that we will get to Genesis 25, but we'll start with Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 has as a major theme the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the central city of the Bible. It's the central city of the redemptive plan of God. It's really the capital city of the Bible, and we've said that numbers of times. Jerusalem first appears in the Bible on or near the site where Abraham nearly sacrifices his son Isaac, but God provides then a substitute sacrifice. Right in that same time period, Abraham meets a mysterious kingly priest or priestly king named Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the city that would become Jerusalem. Nearly a thousand years later, David would attack and capture Jerusalem and make it the capital of his kingdom and And now we see that really Jerusalem, from that point on, becomes the capital of the Bible. It represents the place where God meets his people on earth. It is the the central focus of earth. And of course, Jerusalem is the center stage for the ministry of Jesus. It's the place of his arrest, the place of his trial, of his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. And so if you don't think that Jerusalem is important, if you don't think Jerusalem is the battleground of the ages... Consider this, Jerusalem has been destroyed twice, it's been besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. This is the central city of earth, and if anybody says that land promises in the Bible are not important, I would dare you to say that to a resident of Jerusalem. According to Zechariah 14, Jerusalem will be the point of return of Christ, The city's mentioned by name 810 times in the Bible. The first time it's mentioned by name is in Joshua chapter 10 and the last time in Revelation 21. It has countless alternative names. It is Zion, one of the mountains of Jerusalem and symbolic of her strength, symbolic of her joy. It's called the city of David. It's called the city of the great king. It is called Ariel in Isaiah 29. According to the Jewish Midrash, which is a commentary on the Old Testament, The Old Testament gives about 70 different names for Jerusalem. This is an important place. and So if you want to find out what's happening in the redemptive plan of God, you just follow Jerusalem through Scripture. And that tells you what's happening. Today, Jerusalem is split among Jews, Muslims, Catholics, Greek and Russian Orthodox, and Armenian, not Armenian, but Armenian quarters. It's considered the most hotly contested piece of real estate on earth. You can't buy a piece of Jerusalem. It's just, it's that, it's that uh, big. And in the future kingdom of Christ on earth, Jerusalem will once again be the central city of all things. All of Isaiah chapter 60 is a prophecy of the coming glory of Jerusalem. And let's just take a little taste of it and then that'll get us to uh, Genesis 25. Isaiah 60, the first three verses Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. How do we know this is speaking of Jerusalem in the future kingdom? Verse 14 tells us this, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet, They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This is Jerusalem. And and the rest of the chapter details 
how the saved and the redeemed nations of all the earth are bringing their gifts and their offerings to present to God in Jerusalem in praise for his greatness. This is the the future kingdom. This could be um, very much speaking of the millennial kingdom. It could be speaking of the final kingdom. There's a lot of overlap here. The point of Isaiah 60 is not necessarily to make that distinction. But this is very instructive for us. This picture of Gentile nations coming to Jerusalem to bring their their offerings, it helps us understand the relationship between saved Gentile nations and the restored nation of Israel, the, the saved nation of Israel. Jerusalem and Israel will be the central focus. This is the place where all may come to give their blessings and to receive from the hand of the Lord. Now, why is this important for us? This is important because all of us here, to my knowledge, are Gentiles. And so it's, it's vital for us to understand, do we fit into the plan of God? To see the picture of God's grace, to remember um, those who are not of God's chosen people. That we had nothing to do with the, the birthing of Messiah. We had nothing to do with the coming of the Savior to the earth. I put it this way, when the people of Israel were at Mount Sinai receiving the law of God and living as a blessed nation before him, my ancestors were bowing down to piles of stones, piles of wood, and in some cases, onions or sweet potatoes. That's what, that's what we were worshiping. Our ancestors were running around naked in the woods, finding something that looked vaguely holy and bowing down to it. But was it always God's plan to include Gentiles in the scope of his redemptive will, or are we just an add-on to God's plan when the Jews rejected Christ in the first century? I think this is important for us to understand for our, our spiritual well-being. This morning, we talked about the concept of the triumphant uh, Christian life. This can be an elusive or a badly defined concept. Sometimes we're disappointed by circumstances. We're disappointed by our own sin. We're disappointed when we fail to fully trust the Lord. We don't always feel like God's chosen people. There's nothing inherently special about us. There's nothing that endears us to God. And so the question we would have is, am I included? Are you included in God's plan of redemption at the level of significance that Israel is? At that significant level, I mean, the entire Old Testament is about Israel. And so where do I fit in? Or are you just the sad dregs of a redemptive plan that God will allow reluctantly into his kingdom? Well, now we can turn to Genesis 25 as we continue walking quickly through Genesis in our study of the Pentateuch. We've perused the great uh, sweeping parts of Genesis, creation, fallen to sin, the flood, the Tower of Babel. And now, as we saw last time, Genesis really begins focusing on the formation of Israel, on God's chosen people. And that will be the theme throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Genesis now focuses on this formation of God's people. Moses is giving this revelation of God to the people of Israel right before the conquest to Canaan so that they can understand their significance as a nation chosen by God and their purpose, which is to show his greatness in the world, to make God big in the world. And at this point, when we get here, you know, as, as Gentiles, we're interested in creation. We're interested in the fall and the sin. We're interested in the flood and, and in the Tower of Babel. And, and as we begin to hone down to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Israel, we, we tend to lose interest. 
because we do one of two things. Either we lose interest and just say, well, that doesn't really have anything to do with me. I'm a, I'm a New Testament Christian and I'll, I'll read through my Old Testament with mild interest. Or on the other side, we just begin to identify with Israel as if we are Jews, as if we are Israel. And there is a certain degree of truth to that, that God's people are always God's people. But we tend to take truths which apply to the church and simply apply them to Israel and vice versa. And thus we have a mixed up theology where we don't make the distinctions that scripture makes. But in Genesis 25, we get a reminder that God's plan of redemption certainly is focused first and foremost on his chosen nation, his chosen people. But the purpose for his chosen nation and people is to give a global international plan, which does in fact include at a very high level the love and the choosing and the election of the Gentile. And so today we're asking the question, what is the population of the kingdom? Who's invited I think it is a false dichotomy that theologians who aren't excited about the future of Israel, they create a false dichotomy to to say that that we picture Israel as the varsity believers and us poor Gentiles as just the junior varsity. I don't think anybody who believes in the future of Israel actually thinks that. There is an inner working of God's people together. Now, rather rather than just seeing yourself as a 21st century add-on to the plan of God. What we want to see in Genesis 25 is that God never makes addendums. He never has an appendices at the back of his book. He makes a plan and he executes that plan and the plan has always been the same. And we always go back to this, the central directive of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that humanity is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule alongside God expressed in nations Nations of the earth. So let's divide our thoughts tonight just into two simple statements to kind of dig into this concept. Two simple statements. The first one, God planned for a Gentile kingdom all along. God planned for a Gentile kingdom all along. We went all the way through Genesis twenty-five eleven to finish the saga of Abraham, the progenitor of Israel. But now we have to backtrack a little. Because there's, there's two related passages, one at the beginning of chapter 5, and then the second one, which picks up where we left off. And both of them have to do with the lesser-known sons of Abraham, found in two very brief, very short genealogies. The first genealogy, we go back to the beginning of chapter 25, <clears throat> and look with me at the first four verses. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. And then you have a second genealogy. Verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, 
Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Now, this section must be important. This isn't just a, a little parenthetical section. It must be important because it follows one of the structural toledotes of Genesis, as we've talked about, these are the generations of the Hebrew word Toledot, the generations. These mark the most important section breaks in the book. And so verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, important section. But the context of the passage is important. It's, it's surrounded by the understanding that we have to have of what the focus of the rest of the Old Testament really is going to be. Chapter 24, the very last verse, verse 67 Then Isaac brought her, that is Rebekah, into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So Isaac comes, the the chosen son of Abraham, comes right before chapter 25 in this section about Abraham's other sons. And then chapter 25, verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and so it's bookended by Isaac and Isaac, and in fact, right in the middle, verse 11 of chapter 25, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled Beer Lohai Roy. So Isaac, the promised son, is clearly the emphasis, but this short section in chapter 25 is placed here by the Holy Spirit as an inspired interlude to tell us something important, to tell us about the other children of Abraham. And so in Genesis, and I know this is hard for us to grasp culturally here, and I, don't, I, I won't go into all the cultural ramifications. We just trust that this is the inspired word of God. But in Genesis, Abraham is the father of three different groups of people through three different women. We've already heard much about his wife, Sarah. God promised them a son in, in their old age, the son through whom the chosen nation of Israel would come, through whom the Messiah would come, ultimately through whom the salvation of the world would come from sin because of the Savior coming from that line of Isaac. And then you have the sons of Keturah, that is Abraham's wife after Sarah died, that we read about in Genesis 25. The story of Keturah is told in its entirety here. This is all we get about her. And then you have the people of Ishmael through Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. Hagar's story is more lengthy. Sarah grew impatient, waiting for the son promised by God and and had Abraham have a son through Hagar that would be Ishmael and ultimately Ishmael had to be sent away. And this is what happened with Abraham's other sons as well. They had to be sent away. Look back with me at chapter 25, verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. That is speaking of his right as the legal firstborn. Ishmael was the physical firstborn, but Isaac was the chosen one. He was the physical firstborn. So the, the bulk of everything, including the blessing of God, goes to Isaac. But verse 6 says, But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. And it uses this phrase, sons of his concubines, 
Now, almost certainly this refers to Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, and Keturah. It's likely that Keturah had been maybe a servant of Sarah also, and so he took her as a wife. Why did he send them away? Well, we're at a point in biblical history where nations are forming, and so they couldn't be together. They couldn't be a threat to Isaac, who's the promised son, the legal firstborn of Abraham's household. And so to keep the family peace, the family had to be separated. And so he sends them away with gifts. And we really have what seems to be a sad family situation. God promised Abraham a son through whom would come the promised nation of Israel, through whom the world would know and experience God. But Abraham and Sarah couldn't be patient. So they had Ishmael through Hagar. Abraham even asked God in Genesis 17 to make Ishmael the promised son. And then after his beloved Sarah died, Abraham married again, having six more sons through Keturah. And because Isaac was the promised child, Abraham had to send away Ishmael, send away the sons of Keturah. Listen, we cannot just remove the emotion from this. We can't just say, oh, isn't that interesting? He sent away seven sons. Isaac was the heir of promise. The inheritance of the special promises of God were, belonged to him. But when Abraham sent his other sons away, he gave them gifts. What does this mean? It means that he gave them enough to provide for them for the rest of their lives. He was, he was an extremely wealthy man. He gave them enough to get set up, to get started in life. And then seven sons. He would never see them again in all likelihood. I can't even wrap my mind around the emotion of those moments. First having sent away Ishmael, and then later having sent away the six sons of Keturah. And not to mention, how might Keturah feel about this? All my boys being sent away, being sent away by your father, by Abraham, who clearly loved these sent away sons. This wasn't emotionless. This is the whole family is gone. Sent away from home, and I would be willing to venture that there was great weeping in Abraham's tent for many months. His family was just exploded. Clearly, a distinction needed to be made between Isaac, the chosen, and the promised son, and the rest of Abraham's family, but there's still pain in that distinction. There's still a separation happening. And did these other boys love their father? When Abraham died, look who's at the tomb. Chapter 25, verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, cave east of Mamre. Isaac, the chosen son, and Ishmael, the sent away son. Ishmael, the actual physical firstborn, who by all rights should have had all of the Blessing of Abraham, Isaac, the younger upstart who actually got the blessing. And there they are together. I can only imagine the potential for hurt and for anguish. Isaac having grown up under the blessing of Abraham, Ishmael having been sent away as a young teenager and banished essentially. So why the family mess? Why the sad situation of having to send sons away? Why did Abraham have so many other sons just to have them banished? Why did Abraham have Ishmael just to have him banished? Well, let's consider this. Let's consider Ishmael first. Turn back to Genesis 16. Genesis 16, Hagar, the maidservant, has become pregnant 
by Abraham. But the family friction has caused Sarah to treat Hagar so harshly that Hagar ran away into the wilderness. And let's just read this story. Genesis 16, beginning in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come and from, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lohai Roy. And it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I want you to notice a couple of things here. First of all, God promises to make Ishmael into a, a nation of innumerable descendants, uh, uncountable descendants. And, and second, did you see where the promise was made? At a well, at a place called Beer Lahai Roy. This is, we read this already in chapter 25, verse 11. Where was Isaac going to settle? He was going to settle right there. Meaning that the place that God promised to bless Ishmael would be given to somebody else. Given to the child of promise, Isaac. Another slap in the face. Uh, Ishmael can't even get the, the one little place where his mother was given this promise. Another insult, it seems, to the lesser son. The story continues in Genesis 21. Turn with me over there. After Isaac was born, when Ishmael was a teen... Sarah insisted that Abraham banish Hagar and Ishmael. And how did Abram feel about this? Chapter 21, verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Of course this is displeasing. Ishmael might not be the son of promise, but he's still the first son he's ever had. He had his first son when he's 86. That's a long time to wait, and now... The child must be sent away. And so it's disturbing to him. But God spoke to Abraham and he comforted him. Verse 12, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through, by the way, that's one of the rare times you're going to find in the Bible, God telling the husband to do what his wife says. Just so you know, ladies, it's there. So you can, you can hang your hat on that whenever necessary. But back to our topic at hand here. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. She went, then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. 
For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, in the case of Ishmael, why do we have a genealogy of Ishmael in Genesis 25, 12 through 16? Very simply, because God promised it. God made promises to Abraham concerning Ishmael. He promised that Ishmael's descendants would be innumerable. Ishmael had 12 sons, by the way, just to get a jump on that innumerable part. Why 12 sons? Because God promised that also. He already said that. Turn back with me to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, this is where Abraham says to the Lord, look, we already have Ishmael. Why don't we just go with him? Abraham said to God, this is chapter 17, verse 18. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. But here's this little parenthesis. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Why did God bless Ishmael? Because God promised Abraham specific promises of a nation, 12 sons who would become princes, and that's what the genealogy of Genesis 25 bears out. Well, what about the sons of Keturah? Why are they there? I mean, why are they even mentioned? They're they're not part of the chosen line. There's nothing special about them. Why do they get a, a short mention? They're not in the line of Isaac. They're not going to be included in the national promises to Israel, they aren't tasked with pointing other nations to the glory of God as Israel is. They won't bring in the Messiah. They're not going to have a glorious capital city called Jerusalem. But they also exist because of God's promise to Abraham. A promise that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. Still in Genesis 17, look with me at verses 4 and 5. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Did you catch this? The name change of Abram to Abraham is much more about Abraham as the father of Gentile nations. The sons of Keturah will fulfill this promise to Abraham. The sons of Ishmael will fulfill this promise to Abraham. Why? Because God planned for a Gentile kingdom all along. He planned for you. He planned for me. Let me give you a second statement to help us understand the the importance of this population of the kingdom. You are part of God's promise to Abraham. You are part of God's promise to Abraham. So first, God planned for a Gentile kingdom all along. And second, you are part of God's promise to Abraham. 
God has demonstrated clearly that while Israel is his chosen nation, his ultimate kingdom plan is for all nations, including you. Abraham would become the father of many Gentile nations, and and more than that, he becomes your spiritual father because you're one included in the promises to Abraham. We'll get back to Abraham here in a moment, but I want to show you this. Turn with me over to the New Testament, to Galatians chapter 2. And we'll get to more familiar territory here in the New Testament. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul is arguing for the true gospel, which is by faith alone. The Galatians had been swinging to a works-based false gospel, particularly emphasizing that essentially you had to become Jewish before you could become a Christian. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, justification is by what? By faith. He's making this very clear that your DNA has nothing to do with justification. And in case they wanted to, which Jews would often do, in case they wanted to claim Abraham as their example, Paul destroys this. He destroys that argument by saying that Abraham is the example not of a Jew with faith, but he's the example of all who come to faith. Because is Abraham, technically speaking, a Jew? Technically, no. He comes from Ur of the Chaldeans. And so he represents the Jew and the Gentile. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Quoting Genesis fifteen six. And so then, based on, the, on faith, who are the actual sons of Abraham? Who, who are they? Chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, what does that have to do with you and me being part of God's promises to Abraham? Well, the next two verses tell us. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so when you see in Genesis 25 the genealogy of the sent away sons, we who are Gentiles, we can say because of that chapter, God didn't forget us. We were part of his plan all along. If I could put it this way, if you got saved in the great state of California, you were redeemed 4,000 years and 7,500 miles and the Atlantic Ocean away from Abraham. He has fulfilled that promise. Why is that? Because God made a plan to fill the earth with his believers and he's carrying out that plan through his promises to Abraham. Now, there is a genuine love between Abraham and his sent away sons. Yes, Isaac is the chosen child of promise, but that doesn't mean Abraham didn't love his other children. He had to send them away, but he sent them away with an expression of love. Chapter 25, verse 6 in Genesis, which would safeguard their future. He sent them away so that they wouldn't be a threat to Isaac so that when the 
Blessing went from Abraham to Isaac. The other family members weren't there to issue a challenge, especially as it seems that the Ishmaelites were going to be much greater in number than the the sons and the progenitors of, of Isaac. Isaac would have been outnumbered badly and very, very quickly if they had stayed together. But also, God had promised that part of his personal blessing on Abraham was to give a future hope to many other nations Which brings us to Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. It would be through the singular seed who comes through Isaac, then through Jacob, then through Judah, then through David. It's the singular seed through whom all the other nations that Abraham fathered would be blessed. In other words, the other sons were sent away, but God provided for them. The seed that would come through Isaac would provide salvation for these other nations as well and demonstrated that he would care for the non-Isaac-related children of Abraham, including the spiritual children, and that's us. And this is all relating to the whole picture of Genesis and the Pentateuch. It's all so that God will fulfill his original plan to redeem people from every nation to someday populate his kingdom on earth. It always stays consistent. And that's the whole point of going through the Pentateuch to see that the plan of God wasn't plan A, then plan B, then plan C. Sometimes uh, dispensationalists are accused of saying, well, since the Jews blew it in, uh, in the first century with Jesus, then God had to go to plan B, which, the, which was the Gentiles. I've said this before, theologically speaking, God has never had a plan B. That, that doesn't make any sense. And so as you read Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch, Genesis 25 gives you assurance that although Genesis and the Pentateuch is Israel-heavy, Israel exists to point to the greatness of God, point to the, point to the glory of God, and to point the rest of the world to God. And this has been accomplished through the greatest Israelite of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he has done his work. He came and he offered his life as a ransom for many. And, and he said, Jesus said when he was on earth, he said, I have other sheep. And these other sheep are the Gentiles. And he said, they must come into the fold. And because of this, someday all nations will be filled with peoples who love the Lord Jesus Christ and come to Jerusalem in the coming kingdom to bring them their gifts and their worship. In fact, I want to close out our time tonight by going back to the future Jerusalem in Isaiah 60 to revel in the glorious kingdom of God made of Gentiles and Jews. Go back with me to Isaiah 60, if you would. And I want to spend just a little more time in this glorious passage One of the benefits of having preached through Isaiah is I essentially wrote myself a commentary in my own words. And so I'm going to refer back to that. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. I think among all the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah has pretty much cornered the market on the metaphor of light. As representing Israel's Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9, verse 2, he is the great light. Jesus himself said, I am the what of the world? I am the light of the world. And here, Isaiah tells Jerusalem symbolically to stand up as her savior and as her king arrives. Just as we would stand when royalty enters the room, Jerusalem is to get on her feet to welcome her true king. Now, 
Isaiah had seen countless sunrises over the east hills of Jerusalem and pictures the coming of Christ as a glorious sunrise. Why is this? Verse 2, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. When Christ returns, darkness will be covering the earth. There will be a, a thick spiritual darkness on all peoples of the earth. Antichrist will be wreaking havoc on earth. A great world war will come to one culminating battle. As recorded in Revelation 16, beginning in verse 12, the text says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And here in Isaiah 60, right between the first half of verse 2 and the second half of verse 2, Right in that little white space, you can insert Zechariah 14, 3 and 4. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. The next verses in Zechariah 14 detail the Lord Jesus rescuing Israel, saving her from destruction. And then there will be a time of post-war cleanup and setup. Ezekiel 39.12 says that it will take seven months for Israel to clean up the dead bodies of all the fallen rebels. In fact, there will be so many weapons left over that, that Israel will use them for firewood, according to Ezekiel 39.9, for seven years. Matthew 25 tells us that Christ will gather all the nations to himself. He will judge them. The believers in Christ will enter the kingdom and the rebels against Christ will be executed and prepared for final judgment at the end of the age. And now, once the kingdom is set up under the rule of the light of Israel, the nations now made up only of believers at this point in the history of the new millennial kingdom, the the nations begin to lovingly flock to Jerusalem. Ezekiel 39, beginning of verse 21, records, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Enter in now, Isaiah 60, verse 2, second half, But the Lord will arise upon you. It's the picture of a sunrise, and His glory will be seen upon you. And not only will the nations, that's us by the way, be flocking to Jerusalem, the nations will be providing a service to the saved Jews of the world. What's that service? Well, God promised in Jeremiah 16, verse 15, As the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. And we talked about land in our Q&A session this morning, how important that is in the Bible, that the Hebrew word for land is dirt. There's nothing symbolic about this. I will bring them to land, to their own place. 
it's interesting that most of the time, Christians didn't take that really seriously until May 14, 1948, when Israel was reconstituted as a sovereign independent nation for the first time, essentially, in 2,400 years. That's the comeback of the ages right there. Now, the Israel of today is not the Israel spoken of in Isaiah 60, but 1948 opened eyes that God certainly could, in fact, regather his people. Currently, right now, less than half of the world's Jews uh, live in Israel. Most of them don't acknowledge Christ. They're still spiritually darkened. But when Christ returns, what's the service to the Jews that we Gentiles will provide? Verse 4 tells us, Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. That in some fashion, it will be our passion to get our Jewish brothers and sisters home. And of course, we will be welcomed as well. And God pictures Jerusalem like a mother who's looking out the window, waiting for her babies to come home. Verse 5, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. The heart of Jerusalem will exult. It means to become wide. It's the idea of opening your arms and waiting for your babies to run into them. If you're grandparents and you, you wait for your kids to bring your grandkids home, you know that feeling of looking out the window and waiting for them, checking your phone, and, and if you have them on Find a Friend, making sure, okay, they're five miles away, four miles away, three miles away, and your arms are already being opened. That's how Jerusalem is. The idea of expansive joy, waiting for all of her own to come home. And not only will the peoples of the earth be flocking to Jerusalem, the wealth of the earth will be coming to Jerusalem as well. Second half of verse 5. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Isaiah is creating a picture of a worldwide pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so coming down the streets of Jerusalem will be a parade of nations, a parade of peoples from all nations. Now I want to pause right here. God gave Isaiah this revelation approximately, broadly speaking, 700 B.C. This is 1,300 years or so after the life of Abraham. And I'd like to use just a little sanctified imagination here for a moment. Can we picture together this scene in future Jerusalem being played out and, and given as revelation in writing to Isaiah? But let's, let's imagine that it's a future scene that perhaps could be watched and could be seen as well from outside the eyes of time. And let's imagine that Abraham... Long dead, 1,300 years after this revelation is given to Isaiah. Let's imagine that Abraham has been called to the throne of God. And God says, Abraham, you see the parade of peoples coming down the street in Jerusalem? Yeah, I see them, Lord. Look carefully. Look who's coming to worship Christ and bringing gifts to him. Camels are coming and they're being led by groups of peoples. Isaiah 60, verse 6, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian. That's Abraham's son through Keturah. 
and Ephah. This is Abraham's grandson, the son of Midian, the son of Keturah. All those from Sheba shall come. That's Abraham's grandson, the son of Jokshan, son of Keturah. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar, that's the son of Ishmael, shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth, that's the firstborn of Ishmael shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. The sons were sent out with gifts so long ago and now they're coming home with gifts. Very familiar gifts. Gold and frankincense. Who do you give gold and frankincense to? To Jesus Christ. Can you imagine when Abraham found out that his sent away sons were coming home? with much more than he ever gave them. They're coming home with faith in Christ. And the beautiful house of the Lord is made even more beautiful because the sent away sons are now home. They were sent away with gifts so that they someday could return with gifts. And when Abraham learned of this coming family restoration, when he saw the parade of his family coming down the streets of Jerusalem, I can Only imagine how victorious and how glorious that must have been for him. Because, Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You too, in many ways, are the sent away sons, the sent away daughters. But through Christ, we come home, don't we? We come home. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this glorious revelation. Your Bible is not just a series of randomly disconnected events and verses. It is one beautiful story which shows us your faithfulness that all the way back in Genesis 3.15 when a Savior was promised, all the way back in the early parts of Genesis when God promised to build nations on the earth, promised to save Gentiles through the ministry of his chosen nation of Israel. And someday, Lord, this glorious conglomeration of nations coming to the capital nation, Gentiles helping and loving and serving Jewish believers and and Gentile believers being blessed and overwhelmed by the love of Christ around the world and overwhelmed by the love of Christ found most centrally in Jerusalem. What a glorious day that will be. These parades, I, I can only imagine the music and the, the flowers and the revelry and the, the wealth and the riches being brought to Christ. The singing of massive choirs, the playing of, of orchestras, the, the worship of countless millions who celebrate the incredible, unsearchable wisdom going all the way back to Genesis 1, 26-28. When God said, I will make man in my image, male and female, he created them. And they will be fruitful and multiply and they will have dominion and they will subdue the earth. And that plan will be fulfilled through Christ. We are the lost, sent away sons and daughters. We thank you and praise you for bringing us home through Christ. And I pray, Lord, that any who are here who are not certain if they are home, that they would come home, they would come to the cross, they would receive forgiveness of sins such that they too could be the ones rescued and brought home. We thank you and praise you for your glorious word. 
May it fill our hearts this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.